0: welcome to industry focus I'm Nick Sciple. Uh today we're continuing our top stocks week on the podcast with Jason Hall joining me to share some of his favorite energy and industrial stocks for 2021 Jason welcome back on the podcast
1: it's good to be on belated happy birthday and happy new year my good friend
0: uh, thank you thank you it's it's great to be in, in 2021 uh it's you know we're, <laughs> we're I'd be remiss if we didn't mention obviously that the news yesterday uh, uh, with the Capitol building being being stormed by, by rioters, shutting down uh, Congress is uh, uh, certifying of the election results of the 2020 presidential. Election—not exactly what I asked for on my birthday. You know, we watched the Capitol building. Uh, we, you know, have a view of the Capitol building outside of our window uh, here in, in Alexandria. And uh, you know, I turned to my fiance yesterday. I was like, "Hey, you know, if this building lights on fire, we're going to see this, right?" And I don't think when I ever turned, uh, you know, moved into my apartment, I ever <laughs> thought I would be saying that, much less right. on my on my birthday. But uh, you know, we're we're here. We're not a political show. We don't have any special insights on politics. That's beyond what any informed. Citizen has, but we are citizens of America and citizens of the world. Watching this, Jason, I mean, what was your reaction from an investment point of view, and just from a, you know a citizen's point of view, uh, seeing the events yesterday?
1: Well, we're humans too, right? I mean, these sorts of things. This isn't the sort of thing Americans of this generation have have had to ever deal with. You have to go back to Vietnam the last time there were, you know, anything like. This happening in the presence in the halls you know of of Capitol Hill and certainly nothing like what we saw um, yesterday I was I was flabbergasted I was absolutely flabbergasted and you know at, at, at the risk I don't I don't want any say anything partisan here that's not what anybody's here to hear from me but I think it's pretty easy to to say that it was disgraceful and shameful but to your point to your point. What happened this morning? Sun came up. And democracy worked, right? Right. Democracy worked. I think my favorite, my favorite quote is, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all of the others, right? Government is ugly. It's hard. And it doesn't always work. And nobody ever gets exactly what they want. And sometimes the people that don't get what they want lash out in ways that we don't expect. And here we go. We move forward, right? We move forward. Maybe the biggest takeaway: Don't mix your investing with your with your partisanship, whatever it is.
0: Oh, uh, that. that's true. I was flabbergasted seeing seeing the market. You know, powering through this with. With no results, but again, we're, it just goes to show it's impossible uh, to predict the market. I think, yeah, the important thing for me is what precedents do we set, and I think the precedent that we should set, and I hope we set, is that you know our institutions are will hold strong in the face of you know these sorts of these sorts of events, and uh, that's important for uh, you know the world. It's important for markets, um, and it's important for us as you know American citizens, me and you, Jason, and for you know uh, I'm hopeful this is the, the the worst is behind us, and, and things look better. Going forward, but either way, uh, the sun will come up tomorrow, and uh, we'll try to be optimistic about uh, what we can control and we can change and what we can improve uh, going forward. With that being said, we're here to talk about top stocks. Uh, what do you look for in a top stock, Jason? If, is that a good transition? How did that? How did, how did? I do with that?
1: I think you did about as well as as any of us can, right? I mean, here here's the bottom line. I'll say this one little thing. I think one of the one of the great things about America is that capitalism. You know, this is this is the home of home of capitalism and this has been the biggest test bed to prove that great companies can thrive. And you know what? Sometimes it's that strife and and disruption where they come from. You think about David Gardner, you think about rule breakers looking for companies that disrupt industries, look for big trends, big things that are changing. And that's informed a lot about the way that I invest and the things that that I that I look for, right? So the big thing that I start with is you know what is the trend driving a company's prospects, and usually, I kind of start the other way i start I think about trends a lot. I think about things like the global mid- middle class, right? This is just an interesting statistic that came across from me from following Starbucks and looking at starbucks Starbucks's growth in China and the expansion of China's middle class. you know China's middle class is going to be in a couple of years like five hundred million people. so China's middle class is going to be bigger than the entire United States and then I'm like, well. Africa's growing a lot. You know, Latin America's growing. You know, and there's there's all of these other places that are growing, and then you start finding out that the the bigger trend for the middle class around the world is it's going to grow by a billion people over the next ten years, and then the ten years after that, it's probably going to grow by a billion and a half people, right? So, as much as the middle class trend hasn't been great here, you know, around the world, that's a big trend, and then you have a big trend here where you have the aging of the baby boomers, so there's this big need for all of the things to support you know them as they age in terms of healthcare care and housing and that kind of thing, so you find these trends there 's the cashless trend right, so you find all these trends and then you have to figure out well who's who 's going to benefit from it right who can profit from it right so uh, Brian feroldi our our colleague that 's and um, uh, somebody I spent a lot of time talking with, talks about figuring out who, what stakeholders are going to be benefit the most and let 's be honest, a lot of those trends society wins, but maybe investors don 't really ever make a lot of money so Figuring those two things out first is like the starting point for me, you know, what's the trend <clears throat> driving a company's prospects, and how much is the addressable opportunity for that company to profit? Now, then when I start digging into the individual companies, you know, there are a couple of key things that I like to, that I like to see, right? So, one thing is, you know, who's running the business? You know, what is their, their track record of success? Um, and I kind of think about, I take two different approaches here, right? One thing I love, I love founder-led businesses. Um, But I don't exclusively invest in founder-led businesses, but if I found a business that the founder is still in charge, still relatively young, has a lot of skin in the game, and has a long track record of success doing whatever they're doing, that's like a big green light for me. Um, On the other hand, some of my biggest holdings, the founder has nothing to do with the business at all. But if there's an institutional history of success, that can carry a lot of value, too. right? Winners continue to win, usually, is the case. So, so those are, kind of, the key things that I look at, uh, if you were to, kind of, boil it down into four or five things.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I think I think that's great. I think that the trend stuff I, I think is something that that I, I definitely use when it comes to all right. Where do I think the world is going to be in ten years? What kind of insights do I have about changes that are going to take place? So, so for me, I, I've tried to really simplify things a lot, particularly through through twenty twenty. I think the the big lesson for everybody is just that the future is very hard to predict. Um, even if you think you got to beat on what's going to happen uh, tomorrow, uh, you probably don't. And uh, we we've been reminded of that repeatedly this year uh, so one of them is, is just can I understand it do I understand what what's driving this business sometimes it can just be, you know, common sense. So I've I've talked about online dating, uh, just kind of observing how people behave around me. I remember when I when I invested in in PayPal. The, the big kind of insight for me was they started accepting Venmo for paying for clubs on, on my college campus, and I was like, well, listen, this thing's going to be a runaway winner if everybody on here is using this platform. Something that's just simple um, and easy to understand, and kind of behaviors that are predictable, or, or something. Um, That I look for, I kind of, kind of along those lines. I think as a beginning investor, I'm always, you always get this idea of I want to find this kind of unique thing that nobody else understands. Like I read this thousandth footnote uh, that that nobody else saw. Um, And one, one big thing that I've kind of reached is, is you don't get any bonus points for degree of difficulty or for you know uniqueness um, in, in the stock market. Sometimes those great companies are out there and. They just hit you over the head um, and are pretty obvious. So I don't want to make things too too hard on myself. I think David Gardner said on his podcast uh, recently uh, one of his things that he talks about is um, if it's a great stock idea, you don't have to think about it too much. Sometimes uh, things are you just understand them and they make sense. So I look for something uh, like that along those lines. How easy is is it to replicate? Uh, If you understand something well, you can see how hard is it for somebody else to enter into this market. What are the behaviors that are driving this business? And I think along those lines too is I'll know when I'm wrong right if my insight turns out to to not play itself out in the market um then uh then, then that's that's something important um then lastly is just can it withstand uncertainty and what what's my risk and reward so again going back to what we saw this year I, you know you want to understand okay in a worst case scenario How much? Like, what's what's the worst possible thing that could happen to me, and then what's what's my upside available? Because you know, no matter how good of a bead you think you have on what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next year, you will be surprised. Um, So try to do try to uh, have something where it's easy to understand, so you can stick to your thesis if it's still intact, and to where uh, your downside is protected for when the inevitable kind of hits you. Those are kind of a, a few things. That I look for. Obviously, not every investment checks every box, and uh, I break my own rules all the time. Just like, uh, just like uh, Ben Graham, I, guess I think would say his his best investment he ever had. He broke his own rules. So, um, not to say you won't look at anything in my portfolio and see me breaking that rule. But in a perfect world, uh, stuff that can check all those boxes have be easy to understand, have a high risk reward, and be something that I think can withstand a lot of volatility, unpredictability. Um, in the market, uh, that's something I really like, and you know, have looked for as I talk about some of these companies we'll talk about today. So, along those lines, Jason, we, you know, the name of the show is our top stocks and energy industrials for 2020. What's a pick that you have for us uh, for this year?
1: Yeah, this is a company that people hear me talk about an awful lot, and that should be a, a key that it's probably a pretty good business, and that's uh, Brookfield Infrastructure. Uh, It trades under two tickers. There's BIP, which is Brookfield Infrastructure Partners, that's the limited partnership. And then there's BIPC, which was recently created, and it's a one-to-one economic equivalent. And it's a corporation. uh, And there's a huge price, I don't want to focus too much on this, but there's a huge price variance. I think uh, at market close yesterday, the BIPC traded to like a 35% premium to BIP. And the entire difference is that BIP is a limited partnership, BIPC trades as a corporation, so it's like Coca-Cola. And the reason that matters is because this is really a dividend investment and a dividend growth investment. And the bottom line is a lot of institutional investors um, will not invest in partnerships uh, they're very rarely um, included in indices, or they're more likely to be excluded from indices. Maybe is a better way to put it, uh, because there's different tax implications. The B, uh, the the limited partnerships issue a Schedule K-1. Uh, the dividends are typically taxed. The dividends that the distributions they pay to you, part of it might be taxed at your at your at your nominal your tax rate, right? So it might be taxed if you if you pay a you know 22, 23 percent tax rate. Maybe you, that's what you pay on it versus that 15 percent long-term capital gains rate on regular dividends and BIPC pays regular dividends right so that's one of the things right there it also issues just a 1099 div so there's a lot of large money investors that will buy BIPC that BIP is excluded so that's the biggest reason you see that variance there so why why is why am i interested in this company why is it our top pick for for this year Uh, So, first of all, um, it's talking about the trends, right? So, you know, we've heard for years and years and years that, you know, U.S. infrastructure is in serious need of modernization and expansion, right? Whether you're talking about uh, water infrastructure. Here's a stat that just blew my mind. This is something that American Water talks about 20% of the treated water. Treated drinkable water in the United States is lost in the system every year. Twenty percent leaves the treatment plant ready to be consumed and never reaches a consumer. Right? It's just lost. That the system is so aging and so old. You think about the electrical infrastructure. You know the fact that Edison would recognize most of the components as being things that he helped design. Uh, you think about our roads, our bridges. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on. Right? I mean, besides the rail, which is owned by the railways. Uh, pretty much anything that's a public that's a public property is in dire need of modernization. Um, and then you start just thinking about the growth, right? You think about around the world that big trend of the global middle class. you know I think the, the exact number that the global infrastructure hub, which is a g eight or g twenty initiative, I can't remember which, says that that between twenty ten and twenty almost twenty fifty like twenty forty seven I think is the number that they pegged to the The global uh, infrastructure spend really needs to be like ninety something trillion dollars, right? Just to to modernize and to meet the 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 global need over the next twenty years. the 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 annual spend needs to be somewhere between three and four trillion dollars every single year. That is a ton, a ton of money. And Brookfield is in the middle of this, right? I, I can't think of any other international company that's better positioned to play a role in the deployment and the modernization of all kinds of infrastructure around the world, whether it's water, whether it's uh, transportation, ports, roads, uh, telecommunications, natural gas, and other energy transmission, power transmission. This is is their business, this is what they do, and they're very, very good at it. In terms of generating returns, since the stock went public in early 2008, it's up more than 584% when you factor in the dividend, it's absolutely crushed. You know, crushed the S&P 500 over that period. The dividend has grown over 700% since it was initiated. And you can buy it today and capture, I haven't looked at it at this exact moment, but it's around 4% dividend yield, which is very high, particularly when you consider the interest rate environment. That's because the stock is still down about 7% from the 52-week high back in November. It closed 2020 down about 1% over the full year. You think about a high quality dividend stock with an incredible record of growing the dividend that's tied into some mega trends. And the dividend the stock fell last year. It's just, it's it's stunning to me. It's absolutely stunning to me that that the Brookfield Infrastructure Partners stock is still as as cheap as it is right now. And I, I think honestly, I think it's my top buy right now for anybody that's looking for a long term dividend growth stock. I love it. I absolutely love it.
0: So Jason, one thing that I I think is interesting with this company as well, you mentioned how big this this opportunity is, but also just there's not a huge number of companies in the world that can go buy up and operate these infrastructure projects on such a huge scale, right? I mean Brookfield, I don't know if it's in the Brookfield Infrastructure uh, uh, entity, but I mean Brookfield's like nationalizing South American power grids and things like that. Like there aren't a ton of companies out in the world with that type of expertise. So you have this big opportunity and a limited set of people in a position to exploit it. At least in a big way.
1: Yeah, and there definitely aren't very many pure plays, right? So the Brookfield is 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 a subsidiary. This is a subsidiary of Brookfield Asset Management, ticker BAM, which is one of the largest um, alternative asset managers in the world, right? And this is one of the instruments they use to acquire, improve, operate, <clears throat> and and deploy those infrastructure kind of assets, which fall right in that you know alternative um, asset class for people that are looking for things besides. Stocks, right, or bonds. So it's it's right right in their wheelhouse. And in terms of their history of allocating capital across the cycles, I mean, I just the, the corporate culture there is just is just you know incredibly good. They've had a couple of CEOs in the in Brookfield Infrastructures history, but the corporate culture from the board through every part of the executive suite, and then all the way going back to the Brookfield um, you know asset management, the parent company. Is incredibly incredibly strong, right? They have a process; they're really good at it. They're really good at being counter cyclical. In other words, they they like to play the game of having access to capital when nobody else does and everybody needs it. And that means they can buy great assets. They can go spend a billion or a couple billion dollars to buy an asset that's a regulated monopoly in an area, so they they don't have to compete, right? I mean, think about the durable competitive advantages that their assets have. It's enormous. It is absolutely enormous.
0: Yeah. So I I really like uh, uh, that one. Uh, so I tell you for my my first pick, uh, I mentioned earlier you don't get any any bonus points for degree of difficulty or for originality. So I'm not going to get any bonus points for Berkshire Hathaway. That's ticker BRK.B. Unless you're super rich and you want to buy the A shares, BRK.A. Um, I, I don't have you know three hundred thousand plus dollars sitting around to buy one share of stock. But if you do, thank you for listening and give me a call. Um, but yeah, Berkshire Hathaway, I think you know you mentioned the the movement on on um, Brookfield infrastructure. You look at Berkshire over the the past year, basically uh, um hasn't really moved um significantly about half a percent off its high over the last three years. But you look at how the company performed. Through the pandemic, this is a company that just can't be killed, right? You would think an industrial conglomerate would have some issues during the pandemic, have some type of speed bump, uh, operating cash flow up in the second and third quarters. So the company is uh, now trading at 1.3 times book value. Berkshire, uh, Warren Buffett has really turned on the buyback cannon in the most recent. Quarters, so they've bought $16 billion in stock uh, in, uh, so far this year during the pandemic. 9.3 billion of that in the most recent quarter. Uh, we've got data on September. Paid about $216 per B share today. The shares are around 232, so maybe about uh, 10 or 15 percent above uh, where where uh, Buffett was really. Uh, t- turning on the buybacks. But, you know, you say Berkshire, uh, really boring. Uh, but when it comes to uh, the recovery, so you've got this valuation, right? Lots of, lots of the market is up uh, a super high. I would say Berkshire, from a value perspective, is about in the midpoint of where it's traded as far as price-to-book value over the past 10 years or so, 1.3 times price-to-book. So, really reasonable valuation. And you look at how some of its uh, underlying businesses set up uh, for this recovery. So, you've got the railroad. So, uh, if you want to bring uh, transport anything in this country from from L.A., Chicago, or any, any of those uh, western part of the country. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway's railroad significant player there. You look at building supplies. Everybody everybody's excited about trends. You want to invest uh, in an exciting trend. I think one of the one of the obvious ones right now is there's not enough starter homes for the man that there is in the market we've seen this huge spike up um, in home prices this year we're gonna to have to see new homes built where they own Mac uh, excuse me Acme brick Benjamin Moore paint Shaw carpet Johns Manville insulation did you know did you know Berkshire Hathaway owns the largest seller of recreational vehicles in the world we've had this huge year for for RVs in 2020 you look anywhere within this company and uh, I did, Nick I did not I, I didn't know that yeah yeah so uh one of the ones I'm really excited about uh, moving forward, everybody's excited about electric vehicles, they own Pilot Flying J, and 38% now in 2023, they're going to take their stake up to 80%. I think, uh, I think truck stops, when you talk about electric vehicles coming to market and taking taking a bigger share, uh, they're going to do pretty well. You talk how long it takes to recharge these vehicles, you have to sit there at an hour to recharge your, your vehicle. Pilot Flying J um, is the third largest franchiser of quick service restaurants in the country. So, when you talk about, if I want to go to a place, where I'm, where I'm stuck for an hour recharging my electric vehicle. I think they own the property that may be the best positioned uh, to do that going forward. So I think they have exposure um, to some of these trends. But really, uh, the takeaway is you have this company generating massive amounts of cash. We just had basically the the worst uh, pandemic that could have happened to them, and they've they've powered through without any significant. Hiccups. Buffett is turning on, um, turning on the buybacks. As I said, 9.3 billion dollars in the most recent quarter. They still have something on the order of 140 billion dollars uh, worth of cash on the balance sheet uh, that he has available to deploy. And I think he's just going to keep buying back stock in an incredible way. If you look back, um, you know, sometimes I'll go back and you can read some of his old um, partnership letters. There was one he wrote. In October 1967, about kind of market conditions, right before he wound down his partnership. He says, Opportunities for investment that are open to the analyst who stresses quantitative factors have virtually disappeared after rather steadily drying up over the past 20 years. That sounds kind of familiar uh, for where we've been over the past 20 years or so. He also talked about the size of the fund getting in the way of some of his opportunities. I mean, Buffett has, has had his incredible um, investment success with the Apple investment. That's about half of, of his. Uh, Investment portfolio today, but when you talk about the size of the company, if he's going to go pursue value opportunities, he's really too big to be going after a lot of this small value uh, where it would traditionally be his his kind of uh, bucket he would shop in. So I think what's going to happen is, like he did in the late '60s in the go-go market, you're going to see him start returning capital to shareholders in a really significant way, and I think we're going to see just massive amounts of buybacks. Um, from Berkshire Hathaway. They've already, you know, Warren Buffett was already featured in the Will Thorndike's uh, The Outsiders book, which is all about capital allocation historically and companies that really bought back massive amounts of their stock when opportunities presented themselves or where there just weren't op- great opportunities for re- you know, redeployment of their capital. I think we're going to see a similar thing play out uh, this time with Berkshire. And I think they're just going to buy massive amounts of stock, just plow uh, their cash flow into that. And, um, uh, and the stock is going to outperform the market as, as some of these other areas in the market um are, are a little inflated relative uh, to, to what they can produce. I think I just think Berkshire isn't appreciated for just the massive amounts of cash they can generate and how they can withstand basically you know the biggest disruption Any you shop. could imagine for them yeah. and just power right through.
1: I've got you know a couple of observations about about Berkshire. um when we did our year end uh, pre-record with uh, with Lou and with uh Matt a couple a few weeks back you know we t- we were talking about Berkshire and you know, I pointed out that you know for for a 10 year period at one point earlier this year the S&P 500 had actually doubled you know Berkshire Hathaway's returns like in total returns over that same period like it was just absolutely being crushed and it's narrowed, but over the past ten years, um, the S&P 500 has generated about 320 percent total returns, with Berkshire a little bit around 250. So it's still, you know, outperformed. But I, I don't think I've ever been more interested in buying Berkshire than I am right now. Talking about that book value, you know, I, I pulled I pulled a chart just to look, and I think I mentioned too that it was like it had been seven years. Since Berkshire had routinely traded this cheap, and you look back, and there's been you know little blips on the radar radar where Berkshire stock for a few days or a week fell to below like around 1.2 times book, but it always quickly regained that value, right? 2020, if you look at the sustained valuation that the stock has had for the entire year, this is the cheapest Berkshire has been for this long in a decade. I mean, really, you got to go back to the prior you know crash for Berkshire to be this cheap. And here's the thing, I think it's easy to anchor on the underperformance and not acknowledge that there was this change in the environment for banks and the way investor views, view, investors viewed banks that weighed heavily on the performance of the Berkshire stock portfolio. Berkshire made, Buffett made a couple of really bad investments in, in big oil, the ConocoPhillips investment did not go well at all, the ExxonMobil investments did not go well at all. IBM investment did not go well at all, right? So, there are a handful of of big bets that just didn't work. But you think about the strength of this operating business, and oh, by the way, we just had a 10-year bull run, market bull run, that was almost unprecedented. And Buffett told us back before, he said, in strong bull markets, you know, it's going to be hard for Berkshire to outperform. But when the market is down, that's where we can really win. So, I th- I think, put all that together, and it's just, it seems like a lot of things are lining up in favor for Berkshire to be a great investment over the next decade.
0: Yeah, and I would just say, kind of, you know, oh, I'm taking up for Warren Buffett like he needs defending, but I mean, we shouldn't overlook the Apple investment. I mean, that's that's one of, I mean, he's got a hundred billion dollars in the thing. I mean, and Apple was the the best performing Fang stock in 2020. Um, you know, even amidst even amidst all all this stuff, so. Um, you know, I don't think the guy the guy has lost it despite no, a lot of completely. a lot of the uh, a lot of the talk about about um, his issues. I, I just think um, again we see how big that Apple investment got and the size of their size of uh, uh, the their investment portfolio and just the limited opportunities you see in the market just with how high private market valuations are getting right now. I think he's going to see the best opportunity being uh, buy back your own stock, and he's just going to plow massive amounts of cash into it over the next uh, few years. And you know. It, if and when the valuation, uh, you know, catches up to to where he thinks is fair value, uh, uh, we'll see. The other th- last thing to point out is we're just a couple years on. So July 2018, Berkshire's board changed the policy around uh, when they could buy back shares. So historically, it had been 1.2 times book, 20% above a uh, book value. Once they were below that range, is when he and Charlie Munger could could purchase. They they've since removed that restriction. So, you know. Uh, Wherever the stock goes, he could continue feasibly continue buying indefinitely if he sees that as the best use uh, for capital. So we'll see. It cannot sit in cash forever. I will tell you that.
1: Well, the was it Dominion Energy, the pipelines that they purchased, and the the LNG export facility there. I think we're going to see more of those sorts of things, like these steady cash flow assets that become uh, wholly owned um, subsidiaries. I think we'll see more of that, and you know. Apple was like that's Coca Cola part two, right? That's this massive valuable consumer brand that its IP isn't just the product that it makes, right? It's the name and the value and the ability to make this huge profits off of off of something that users really, really like. So yeah, we'll we'll see what happens next. But I lo- I love this picnic, I really do.
0: All right, so we've got a couple more picks to run through. Let's do these next one kind of quickly, Jason. What have you got for your second pick?
1: Yeah, so this is um, this is a stock that's that's had a pretty good year. It's NV5 Global. The ticker is NVEE. Uh, NV5 Global is a small. This is a, this is a micro cap stock here. I think the market caps maybe a billion dollars, maybe a little more. But it's had, it's had a pretty a pretty good run lately, um, and the reason why is this is an infrastructure engineering company, right? So, here we are with uh, Democrats having control of both houses of Congress and and the White House coming up, and there's this idea that we're finally going to see a big push on infrastructure spending, this should be bipartisan, it should be something that gets done, right? I don't know if I, if I buy into that happening or not, but here's the key, right? It's been great for MV5 <laughs> investors over the past few months. And the bottom line is that whether it happens or not, this is a business that's going to continue to ride some of those same trends that Brookfield Infrastructure, my first pick is was set up, was set up to profit from. So here's the things that I like about Brookfield infrastructure, right or excuse me about MV5 Global. So this is a company that is founder led. Uh, Dickerson, right, Dick Wright, the the CEO is, the fa- is, a, is a founder. He owns over 20% of the company shares, and he has a really long track record uh, of success prior to founding NV5, which has been around for over a decade. So the thing is, it's it's this is an acquisitive model, so right, so they 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 grow org- organically, you know, eight to 10% a year, which is really solid, but they do make a lot of acquisitions, right? So a lot of bolt-on acquisitions of small engineering firms that maybe have regional. They have a good a re- regional coverage, or maybe they have a certain discipline that fits within the NV5 model. So they bolt on these these acquisitions. They convert these acquisitions over to their back end, so they kind of ring out some of the costs. But then they also benefit from cross selling, right? So if you hire, you know, an, if you buy an engineering firm that focuses on one thing, and they're working with a client on a project, and they need engineers that do something different, or maybe they are they have a property in a different area that they need to develop, or something like that. NV5 can meet that need that that small engineering firm couldn't meet on their own, right? So that's how they can cross sell, and that's where a lot of their organic sales growth come from. They're actually attached to the fact that the, the the original deal maybe came through an acquisition, right? So the bottom line is, it's hard to do this well, but NV5 has a really good model, right? They're really good at wringing out those costs. They're really rigorous about it. A lot of companies that do buy, that do acquisitions end up really bloated. These guys have been really good about not letting that bloat come along along for the ride. And you think about you think about sales growth. This is a business, this is a company that still doesn't do a billion dollars a year in revenue. But over the past year, they've grown, I think they grew revenue something like 70%, right? Just just absolutely, absolutely delivering. It's also a profitable business. And even with the stock price having run. You know, say what sixty percent or so over the past year. The forward P- uh, price to earnings ratio is about twenty three times, right? So this is a stock that still trades for a really solid discount to the market, which I think the forward PE for the S and P is over thirty times right now. It's just the market trades for really high valuations. You can buy a very small company participating in a really gr- big growth opportunity that's founder led, that's profitable. At a great price, right? I think it just kind of checks almost every single, every single box for me. Again, the big caveat is the way that they've done a lot of their growth is a hard way to do it, and the bigger they get, the harder it's going to be to find acquisitions to give meaningful growth. But they're still so small, I think it's 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 a great company to buy.
0: Awesome, yeah. So so NV5, so that's an engineering firm. So they're the folks who are doing the construction of, of some of these projects.
1: Yeah, yeah. So well, they 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 do they so they do the engineering. They do a lot of the pre work. They do project management. They um, recently made a big geospatial services acquisition, so that's a big deal in the West with the wildfires and all that stuff to do geospatial work and to help make sure to help companies like power line transmission and that kind of thing. So they're they're they've kind of expanded a little bit outside of their initial scope, but it's a really smart place that they've expanded into. They've been really really disciplined. So yeah.
0: Awesome. So, my second pick, just as quickly, is Texas Pacific Land Trust. I discussed this company on December 10th uh, with Luis Sanchez. Uh, stocks up about 15% uh, since then, trading at about a little over 800. Dollars a share. Today it's Texas Pacific Land Trust. On January 11th, it will become Texas Pacific Land Corporation. So if you listen to the episode back on December 10th, you know the history of this company goes back to the 1800s. There was a company called the Texas Pacific Railroad that went bust and had a, a, a certain amount of land. They formed a trust uh, for the shareholders in that company to hold and maintain that land over a period of time. Well, we're here 120, 100, almost 140 years later. And that company is now uh, is going through the process of of becoming a corporation. So on um, January 11th, they will distribute one for one uh, for shares of Texas Pacific Land Trust. They will distribute shares to Texas Pacific Land Corporation. The phone number is the same. The address is the same. The ticker is still the same, TPL, but the company uh, will change into a corporate form. So just from a business operations point of view, what's interesting about this company? Well, I think. Over the past year, obviously, really rough for oil and gas. The oil oil prices down significantly as demand throughout the world has fallen. Also, there was some some supply issues, obviously, in the spring with with Saudi Arabia and Russia kind of going to war with one another. But now we've we've seen prices stabilize, They're above fifty dollars now. Saudi Arabia has done a significant cut in an attempt to support the market, and it appears with, with demand returning later this year and with uh, the, the measures that some of these producers are taking, we're in a, an environment that should be constructive um, for oil prices. So, we said, okay, oil prices are headed up. Generally, a lot of these companies that would be exposed to that aren't attractive investments. So, we've talked about on the podcast a lot about exploration and production companies. You have these fixed costs you got to put in to keep your wells maintained and that sort of thing, which you're exposed to lots of commodity risk. Uh, these companies sometimes have, have misaligned management teams those types of issues, so you don't necessarily want to invest in those businesses. But what Texas Pacific Land Trust gives you is a way to get some exposure to that uh, without uh, you know having some of these operations that, it, that an EP company has. So, just kind of straight from their perspectives, TPL Corporation is one of the largest landowners in the state of Texas, with approximately 880,000 acres of land comprised of a number of separate separate tracks located in 19 counties in West Texas. They also own uh, royalty interest on 80 uh, a 1 128th royalty interest on 85,000 acres of land and a 116th non-participating royalty interest under 371,000 acres of land in Western Texas. In uh, 4,000 uh, additional net royalty acres. So they own. Basically, they own massive amounts of land in West Texas that includes, so this is the Permian Basin, this is the area where among these shale plays, where the cost of production is the lowest, where you hear a lot of these companies that uh, that have talked about focusing their investments like Exxon and Chevron and others said, hey, we're going to de-emphasize some places like the Bakken, we're going to emphasize the Permian where, where our prices are lowest. So, to the extent oil production is, is reducing, and it certainly is reducing um, in the U.S., some of those dollars are going to uh, flow to the Permian, which is where Texas Pacific Land Trust is located. So they have uh, surface rights. That's where you see um, pipelines and the like constructed. Just uh, on January 4th, Kinder Morgan uh, turned on their Permian Highway pipeline, taking natural gas um, out of the area. It's fully subscribed on on regular contracts. There's the big the big issue in the Permian for the longest time has been takeaway capacity. And if you want to install these pipelines, Texas Pacific uh, has those surface easements that folks have to pay them to get access to that as well. I mentioned they have this royalty acreage, so whenever oil gets pulled out of the ground on the acreage that they control, they get income coming in. So, they don't have to pay to build the pipeline, they don't have to pay to drill the wells, they just get an income based on the oil and gas um, that's produced. And they're predominantly in the region, uh, in the Permian Basin, where we're going to still see some continued uh, production of oil and gas. So essentially uh, you you look at the balance sheet for the company no debt um over 300 million dollars in cash if you look at the uh at their free cash flow yield so this is just their free cash flow uh, divided by the market cap of the company kind of the in, it's the inverse of the free cash flow multiple if you like the price to free cash flow multiple if you like to look at that uh it's it's uh basically the highest it's been in in 5 years um We have this conversion uh, taking place. Jason mentioned earlier uh, with the Brookfield Infrastructure Corporation how their conversion opened up access to a broader variety of investors. That same, uh, those same factors are at play here with the conversion to Texas Pacific Land Corporation. The other thing is, you just get better corporate governance. This has been in a in a trust management style for in excess of 100 years. the The trustees were appointed for a lifetime uh, lifetime appointment. Now you're going to get regular uh, reporting, uh, fully. Uh, the, they're going to have a new board in place, eight of nine members being independent. Different incentives, right? If you're a trustee, you're just trying to preserve these properties going forward. You have a lifetime appointment; nobody's going to fire you. If you are a manage, manager, uh, you know someone who is a a corporate manager, you can get fired if you don't do a good job and you have incentives based on the performance of the company and all those sorts of things. So, so what Basically, what you're getting with, with Texas Pacific Land Trust is uh, exposure to what is likely to be an area of, of the U.S. where oil and gas production continues, where there's demand to either get pipelines installed on their land or to you know, continue to extract oil and gas um, from that region. You get it in a company with a super strong balance sheet, so even if there's continued volatility in the oil and gas market, this company is not going to go bankrupt on you. They're going to stick around to collect that value, and that value really is the oil and gas um, um, in the ground. And I think today, if you look at the valuation relative to where it's been in the past five years, it's attractively valued. Um, Issues that that might not work out for them, obviously, if if oil and gas prices are, are low over a period of time, People might not choose to produce oil and gas on their land, and they don't get money if no oil and gas comes out of the ground, or if nobody's using those uh, those surface easements to install new pipelines because because producers have decided to not um, install more pipelines. But if you do believe that that oil and gas production is going to continue in a meaningful way in the Permian basin in the US and I think it will because if you want to think about it just from you know the future perspective we need natural gas to light our homes I know renewable energy is certainly on the rise but but natural gas is going to be an important contributor to our to our energy grid for decades to come just as just as oil is going to be a you know important contributor to travel and and those sorts of things also from just a national security point of view permian basin is probably our greatest asset when it comes to you know, oil and gas uh, uh, production here in the country uh, to develop over the next you know, few decades. So, does that mean we're ever going to get our production back to the peak it was um, a few years ago? No. But I do think uh, they're, they're going to continue generating cash um, out of this region for a long period of time, and uh, Texas Pacific gives you uh, some exposure to that.
1: Crazy, crazy stat. Last week, I don't know if you saw this, you probably did, zero barrels of oil came into the United States from Saudi Arabia.
0: When's the last time that happened? I, I, I can't, I can't remember.
1: <laughs> yeah. I can't remember, right? Um, so, and, and that's that's happened in a large part because of the Permian Basin, the Bakken. You know, the development of a lot of these, these shale resources. So it's it's valid. You know, the thing I like about this the most, Nick, is yeah, there's exposure to prices, right? Because low oil prices mean lower royalties. They have because it can affect volumes that come out of these areas. But this is if you if you believe, as I do, that oil and gas are going to continue to play a role. This is a great way to invest in in the production, without taking on the risk <laughs> that every independent has, which is you can't get what it costs you just to get it out of the ground. Right. This is the best. Own own the royalties. Own the real estate. Yeah. You know, let somebody else deal with producing it.
0: Absolutely. I think about we've talked about air cap on the podcast in the past as a way to invest in an airline recovery. Mm-hmm. You own the airplanes. Yep. Even if the air, even if the airlines go bankrupt, you have. AirCap has these planes, these planes that will continue flying. There's still demand to fly, um, still demand for that value that airplanes represent. And I think in a similar way, Texas Pacific is in a similar spot, right? This, so whether these these ENPs go bankrupt or not, that oil and gas in the ground has value, right? It has value for for what it can be done, you know, what we can do with it, and you know fuels, or fertilizer, or chemicals, or plastics, or all those sorts of things. That has value and will continue having value whether these companies, these producers go bankrupt or not. And Texas Pacific owns the option on that value. So, um, um, that, that's that's the scenario you're in uh, uh, with these companies. All right, Jason. Uh, so, those are our, our, our stocks we ran through. So, we've got Texas Pacific Land Trust, soon-to-be Texas Pacific uh, Corporation, TPL, Berkshire Hathaway, ticker B. If you're a, a Regular person, and if you're super rich, you can do VRK uh, A. And then, Jason, what were your two two picks for us?
1: So the the second one was NV5 Global ticker NVEE and Brookfield Infrastructure, the Infrastructure Partners ticker BIP, and then Brookfield Infrastructure Corporations BIPC. I encourage people that it makes sense for to buy BIP at the current at the current valuation.
0: All right, yeah, and uh, if you want to see more information on Texas specific, like I said, you can go back to our December tenth episode. I, th- I believe we've talked about we've pro- talked about the Brookfield companies over and over again. So look back anywhere in our in our uh, history, and you- you'll be able to track it down whenever we're talking about renewable yield codes or-, or any of that sort of thing. Jason, always love having you on the podcast to talk about some of our favorite stocks, and I'll look forward to having you on again next time.
1: Thanks. This was fun. I'm sure, we'll be talking soon.
0: As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For Jason Hall, I'm Nick Sciple. Thanks for listening and Fool on!